Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Will you find your place in Luke 9, 27? 9.27, and while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. Sometimes we don't understand God's plans in our world or in our own lives. Other times we find that we're not sufficient for the challenges He sets before us. But in the transfiguration of our Lord and in the events that followed, God graciously showed His disciples and He shows us that there are certain realities that should assure us in the face of the trials and uncertainties of life. The transfiguration assures us of unseen realities, namely that Christ reigns even now and that His kingdom will surely come. Like a runner in a marathon, when he looks to the horizon or looks to the finish line, he is assured to keep running. We are duly encouraged by these same things. So if you found your place then in Luke chapter 9, in verse 27, would you follow along with me as I read to verse 45? But I tell you, truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. and They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Father in heaven, we confess that we are often as spiritually dull as the disciples in this passage. We need you to open our minds 
We need you to give us wisdom and understanding so that we might receive these truths in this text, so that we might understand your word for us. We might hear it with faith. So we pray now, Lord, that you would do such a work in our hearts and our minds so that we might receive it and believe it and hold it fast all our days. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I made my argument, stated my argument, that the transfiguration and the events that followed assure us in the midst of life that is filled with uncertainties and trials, they ensure us of unseen realities, namely that Christ is indeed on His throne, that He indeed is robed in majesty, that He indeed reigns over all things, that He will surely come again. I want you to see this as we walk through the text and consider the unfolding narrative, and as we note the uncertainties and the trials that we're facing the disciples as we walk through this narrative. You see, we can even consider the larger context as we reflect on previous weeks and where we've been. The disciples, they came to understand who Jesus is when Peter, speaking for them, stated that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Matthew has it. And here in Luke, you are the Christ of God. Peter, for all the disciples, confessed rightly and truly who this person was. And we considered that truth in detail last week. Nevertheless, in the midst of that confession, we find that Peter and the disciples did not fully understand the import of what they were confessing. They did not fully understand the truth of what they were saying. For Jesus right away charged them to tell no one and instead spoke of what was about to take place, namely that he was going to go to the cross to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, to be buried, and on the third day to be raised. More than this, he did not speak only of his own coming death and resurrection, but he also called them to embrace a life characterized by bearing their own cross as well. We saw that in Luke 9, 23 and following, when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You can imagine in our own context, in our own day, if someone had been sentenced to execution, perhaps in something like an electric chair, and had been told beforehand to build that electric chair himself, what a humiliation that would be. That's what this would have sounded like in their ears. They knew what a cross was. A cross was an implement of of execution. It was a horrific way to kill somebody for crimes committed against the state. It was a kind of death that was reserved only for people who were uh, considered the lowest in all of society. Slaves, certainly not something that one would do to a Roman citizen. But here Jesus calls the disciples saying, take up your cross and follow me. What I want you to do is you reflect on those statements and those sayings which form the context for our text today. Consider the uncertainty that that would have engendered in the minds of the disciples. Consider also the trials that would have come with it. The disciples were not looking for a Christ who was anything but a glorious king. And they were looking for a glorious kingdom to come with him. They certainly weren't thinking about bearing their crosses. They weren't thinking about the Christ going to the cross. They weren't thinking about service. They weren't thinking about sacrifice. They weren't thinking with minds that were humble. But rather, they were thinking of their own exaltation, 
as they looked to the exaltation of Christ, they wondered what it would mean for them. So the way that Jesus spoke created a lot of uncertainty in their lives. It foretold trials, trials in His crucifixion. They would see that their leader would be lost, and they would wonder what they're to do. They would wander aimlessly for a couple of days, wondering what they had just spent the last three years doing following this man who they thought was the Christ. And in the aftermath of that, as they saw him raised and they came to grips with the truth of those things that he said, they would also need to consider the truth of what he had said concerning their lives, of cross-bearing. What would it mean for them? What kind of trials would they face? In this moment, as they look forward to those realities, they were faced with a great deal of uncertainty. Now, there is a lot of uncertainty in the text before us, not only in the minds of the disciples, but also in the very words that we read. We wonder what to make of them. Look at verse 27, with which we began our reading this morning. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. And then when we look at how the passage ends, and we reflect on how our passage last week, uh, uh, what was at the center of it, with Jesus predicting in two different places, His coming crucifixion, we see at the very end of our passage, the disciples don't understand this as well. Verse 45, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. From our perspective in the aftermath, at least in the second saying, we see very clearly what Jesus was saying. It's rather plain when we consider all that we know of Christ's death and His resurrection. But from their vantage point, that was as uncertain as what Jesus said in verse 27 is to us. And I suspect that they thought they knew exactly what Jesus meant when He said those words in verse 27. But I submit to you that they really did not. You see, when Jesus speaks about tasting death, and when He speaks about seeing the kingdom of God, our natural inclination is to think that He's speaking of His return, of the second coming, when He comes in glorious power with the angels, with those who have fallen asleep, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, with those who have died, and then He ushers in His glorious kingdom finally and fully. That's what our minds run to. And I'm sure that that's what the disciples were thinking of. Not so much His coming, but the idea that He's already here, and we're just waiting for Him to get this show on the road, to take this show to Jerusalem, to set up His throne, to bring in this kingdom. They're thinking in terms of immediacy. They're thinking now. And that idea of tasting death. They say, well, surely this will happen, at least for some of us, before our lives come to an end. But Jesus often spoke in enigmatic ways. Jesus often spoke in ways that seem a little bit like a riddle, that we have to meditate upon his words and think about what it is, what he could possibly mean. There are a lot of ideas about what this text means, what this verse means. I do want to consider some of them this morning because many of them have a great deal of merit. There's one interpretation that I want to simply reject outright but you'll, because you'll see it quite a bit if you read in the literature. And one, that, that interpretation is just what I've already said, that this points to His second coming. And the way it goes is that scholars who don't believe in the Scriptures will say that the early church, they thought Jesus would return in their lifetime. They were wrong. There you go. This is wrong. Well, of course, that doesn't make uh, a whole lot of sense for those people who've come to understand that God, this is God's Word, that it is true, that when God speaks, He speaks out of Himself, He being perfect and true in every way, 
only speaks that which is true. That His Word has proved true time and time again, and so we have sufficient reason to trust Him even when we cannot understand what He has said. I want you to reject that interpretation. It's not a very good one. But there are others that make a great deal of sense. First off, we could consider that tasting death may in fact refer to a kind of spiritual death which believers will not experience. You see this phrase is unique. We don't see it in many passages. We see it in all of the accounts of the transfiguration. And we see it in two other texts. In John 8, 52, where Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, he will not taste death. And we see it in Hebrews 2, 9, where we're told that Jesus Christ himself tasted death for us. He tasted death in our place. And so it's possible that what Jesus is saying is that you will not taste death in that sense. You will not die spiritually before you see the kingdom coming in power. I don't think that's quite right, though, though it's possible. Another possibility is that he's referring to the giving of the Spirit, that the coming of the kingdom here in the, seeing the kingdom of God is something that the disciples will see when the Spirit is given in the book of Acts and poured out, and we see the gospel begin to go forth and go forth to the ends of the earth, and we say, here, the kingdom of God is coming with power. That, too, makes a great deal of sense, but I don't think it's the best answer, the one that's most rooted in the text before us. The answer I suggest to you is that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration itself. That we ought to understand that, the, that what he's saying is that when you will see the kingdom of God, he's speaking of the events that are about to take place. That some in their midst, namely Peter and James and John, will see the kingdom of God when they see him gloriously transfigured. And I'll show that to you why I think that's the, the, the correct interpretation, as we consider the text and as we consider it in light of what we read this, uh, this morning together corporately when we read from Second Peter chapter 1. We'll turn there later on. But I w- want to suggest to you at the moment at least that this is a reference to the coming transfiguration. And it makes sense because in each, Matthew, each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the very, uh, these, this very statement is followed by the record of the transfiguration. Now we come and we see that about eight days after these sayings, Luke specifically situates what's taking place after these sayings. Jesus takes Peter, and he takes John, and he takes James, and he goes on a mountain to pray. And we've talked about how when Jesus goes to pray, it signals that some great revelatory moment is about to take place, or some, uh, some important moment in the gospel narrative is about to unfold before us. And we see as they go to pray, Jesus is praying and the appearance of his face suddenly is changed and his clothes too become dazzling white like lightning. But the disciples are sleeping. Jesus is there. He's standing with two other men who turn out to be Moses and Elijah. But the disciples are heavy with sleep. And then in the in, in, in this situation, they suddenly they begin to wake up. They come to their senses and they see what's going on. They're fully awake and they saw his glory and they heard him talking as we saw earlier. They were, they were talking of his departure. They were talking of uh, literally rendered his exodus. And they see his glory and they see the two men who are standing there. 
And Luke focuses our attention in this account on Peter himself. It's Peter and the others who are with him. And it's Peter who speaks up and says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We think, well, Peter is assertive. Peter seems to know what to say in the moment. Peter seems to have a plan. He seems not to be characterized by uncertainty. But then Luke clues us in that something different is going through his head. I think that you probably know what this is like. Or am I the only one who ever, not knowing what to say, says something stupid and inserts my foot into my mouth? I, can, I, I can't count on both my hands and my feet how many times I've stood before a captain or an admiral in the Navy and opened my mouth and inserted my foot because I was nervous and knew not what to say. That's what's going on in Peter's mind. He was saying these things, verse 34, not knowing what he said. What, what might be going through his mind, though? What is he fixing on? It seems that Peter, somehow seeing Moses and Elijah and proposing that he should build three tents, is either thinking back to the Exodus when God manifested His glory to His people and yet dwelled with them in the midst of the tabernacle. Or he's thinking, and maybe both of these are in his mind, he's thinking to that later festival, that later feast of tabernacles, whereby the people would regularly remember the way that they in the wilderness lived in tents as they left Egypt and wandered for those 40 years. We don't have to, I think, answer the question because we know Peter doesn't really know what he's talking about. But we can explore that latter idea, that idea of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which I want to say, in citing my references, I learned from some of you in Sunday school a few weeks ago to look down this road and consider it. But in the, in the Israelite mind, in the feasts that they had throughout the year, the Feast of Tabernacles was something that they would celebrate in the fall at the time of the harvest. It was a joyful feast, a feast of celebration. And in their minds, it came to be associated with the future coming of the kingdom. For example, in Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah speaks of a day when the Christ will stand and rule his people, and he will draw people from every nation, and year by year will cause them to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so perhaps in Peter's mind, he's thinking, I want to keep this moment going, or something like, well... That's that great moment. That's that great event that will usher us into this great age with this beautiful kingdom, this wonderful kingdom. It's about to happen. It's about to take place. And so Peter's starting to think along these lines. The kingdom is coming in power now. But as we've noted, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And as he's saying these things, a cloud comes and overshadows them. And they're afraid, they're struck with fear. And wouldn't you be in the presence of Almighty God as they enter the cloud? And here we think again of the Exodus. We're seeing pictures of Moses and we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the glory of Christ and we're seeing this cloud that comes and overshadows them on the mountain. And people talking about tabernacles. And we're reminded of the Exodus and those, that glorious time when God dwelt among His people in a visible way in the tabernacle. And the voice comes from the cloud and it says, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. I submit to you that Peter and the others with him needed that reminder in this moment. For Jesus has been saying quite clearly what He must do. And they're not listening to Him. They're not understanding him. 
And at the end of our passage, when he says, let these words sink into your ears, they still can't get it. They need this reminder. They have to listen to him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what must take place. This vision is not so that they might know that the kingdom is about to come with immediacy. This vision is so that they might know that the one who stands before them, the one that goes to the cross, is even now, in their midst and in our midst, is the glorious Son of God who reigns forever and ever in majesty. And though we cannot now see Him, it is no less true. It is a certain reality upon which our faith must be fixed. That He gloriously reigns even now. And that He will come and His glory will be seen again by everyone on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we, like Peter and the disciples with Him, we need the same reminder. This is God's Son. This is His chosen one. That is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 42. When Isaiah says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen. We're told to listen to him. Words taken from Deuteronomy 18.15. When Moses spoke of a coming prophet, one like him but greater than him, and said, It's to him that you shall listen. God will put his words in this prophet's mouth. This is who is before us in majesty. This person who was gloriously transfigured before Peter and James and John. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So there's no mistake that it is him and not the others. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now as we reflect on this event, we could easily stop there and simply consider the transfiguration. But I think it's meaningful that every one of these synoptic gospels pairs this account with the following account. And we're going to see that Luke, in fact, ties them closely together in terms of the themes. For the very next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And we see that there's a man from the crowd who cries out, Teacher, and he tells him that his son has this demon. He begs of him to cast the demon out. Matthew and Mark give us a great deal more of the details of this account. But Luke gets right to the matter. This man is begging Jesus to exercise this demon from his son. And we get a sense of what this demon is like and his strength and how much he tries to destroy this boy. He seizes him. The boy cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. Even using such vivid language and imagery, it shatters him. It seeks to destroy him. And it will hardly leave him. This ongoing horrific experience for this father and for his son is one that we find the disciples were not ready to meet. In the beginning of chapter 9, you remember, Jesus sent out his disciples and he gave them authority to, among other things, cast out demons. But here they're confronted with a man whose son has a great demon in him. And they can do nothing. The man had already come to the nine that were remaining on the foot of the mountain and had begged them to cast it out. And they couldn't do it. And so Jesus utters these words of lament, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He says, bring your son here. It's not clear in the narrative who he directs those words to. Is he speaking to the man? Is he speaking to the crowd? Is he speaking to his disciples as the faithless and twisted generation? I suggest that 
It's meant to be ambiguous. We're meant to hear that and ask the question that disciples should have asked themselves. Am I acting like a faithless and twisted generation? We find in Matthew's gospel that the reason they weren't able to do it is because of their little faith. Their faith wasn't up to the task. And in Mark we find that this kind of demon only comes out by prayer. But the disciples never found it in their, uh, in their minds to go to the Lord and pray that He would help them, that He would do this mighty work. No, they tried to do it in their own strength, trusting in themselves, not trusting in their Lord. And so for them, there's this possibility that they might be counted with a faithless and twisted generation. We'll see that Jesus uses this phrase again and again, this idea of a, a generation that has no faith, the idea of a twisted generation throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's always a people who are seeking signs, who, are, who have seen things but are never ready to believe Christ on the basis of what He has shown. So what I'm suggesting simply is this, that this possibly and potentially applies to everyone who hears it. And so it comes to us as a warning so that we might not be counted with that faithless and twisted generation. Jesus was not going to be physically present with the disciples for much longer. He had been saying that quite clearly to them. There would come a time in their lives where they'd have to make a decision, where they'd have to throw in their lot with Him completely, trust Him completely, or they'd have to say, we're not quite convinced that this guy is the one we should be following. There would come a moment of decision in their lives. And these kinds of phrases, I suggest to you, function for them and function for us like a challenge not to associate with ourselves with those who are faithless, those who are twisted, those who hear the Word of God, those who consider the mighty works of God that He displayed through the Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that He displayed through His prophets and through His apostles, and yet refuses to believe. So Jesus gives them another mighty work, another demonstration of His majesty and His power. While He was coming, we read, the demon threw the child on the ground, convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. I noted for you a moment ago the details, some of the details that Matthew and Mark give us. Matthew draws attention to the disciples' lack of faith. Mark draws attention to the necessity of prayer in this account. But Luke draws attention to the majesty of God displayed in Christ. That is why, I think, this passage is so closely paired with what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. Not because only because one followed immediately after the other, but because in both cases, Jesus was demonstrating that which was normally veiled to His people. Remember what Peter said, let me build three tents for you and for Moses and for Elijah, each one of them appearing in glory. What were the tabernacles for in the Exodus? What was the tabernacle of God for? It was meant to veil His glory. And here Jesus is manifest in glory along with Moses and Elijah. And Peter proposes a veil for that glory, a tabernacle if you will. But what we find is that Jesus does not need another tabernacle. He does not need another veil. His majesty is already veiled in His flesh, in the form of a servant. You think of the words from John chapter 1. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. The same terminology for tent is found here. The word became flesh and pitched its tent and tabernacled among us. The glory of God was already veiled in the form of the servant, Jesus Christ. And yet it came out, and yet he demonstrated his glory in mighty ways in the presence of these three disciples, taking away the veil as God took it away. And as they came down from the mountain, in demonstrating his complete and total authority over this demon, who was too strong even for the disciples who had received power from the Lord, he is demonstrating his glorious majesty in ways that are unmistakable, in ways that are clear, in ways that should assure the disciples, and ways that should assure us. As they consider their own insufficiency, seen in their own sleepiness, seen in their spiritual dullness, their inability to understand what Christ is saying very plainly about his, himself, their failure to cast out this demon, compared with all of their early successes that we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, they are encouraged by the certain reality that Jesus, though he's about to go to the cross, is not about to fail. Jesus, though he's about to suffer and be delivered into the hands of men, it's not because somehow he's insufficient for the task. Do you see why it was so important that he was transfigured before them? Why he demonstrated his majesty in this way? So that they might see five certainties that should encourage them in the, the Christian life and five certainties that are before us that should encourage us in the Christian life. First, we see the certainty of God's purposes in His plan. Let me draw your attention to some of the things that we've seen in this text already. Notice that it's Moses and Elijah who appear with Jesus. Moses, who is one through whom the law was given. And Elijah, who stood as one of the greatest of all the prophets. We see here two men who do rightly typify the law and the prophets but also who stand as two of God's greatest emissaries, greatest representatives. And yet, what are they doing? They're talking with Jesus about himself and about what he's going to do. Not Moses' exodus, not Elijah's mighty works. They're talking with Jesus about his exodus, his departure. And what Luke is showing us is that this indeed does not simply come to us as a uh, wrench in the plan. It does not come to us as sort of uh, God finding a way to solve a problem that he did not anticipate. It comes to us as the climax, as the culmination of all of God's eternal purposes. His purposes are coming to their climax in Christ. We see it again in the way that God speaks of him when the voice is heard from the cloud. He calls him the Son of God. He calls him the Chosen One, drawing from that language from Isaiah 42. And he says to listen to him, drawing from Deuteronomy 18.15, showing us again that this one who is the Christ brings all of those Old Testament threads, all of those prophecies, all of those expectations, brings them to fulfillment in himself alone. The Old Testament does not point to many Christs. It points to one Christ, and that is one of the key messages of the Gospel of Luke. As Jesus unfolds to his disciples, everything that is written about him in the whole of Scripture, in the law, in the prophets, in the writings, it all points to him. It all centers on him. It all points to the one who will be king forever and who had to go to a cross and suffer and die and rise. So you can be certain 
in the uncertainties of life, that nothing, nothing that you experience is outside of that sovereign plan. If this, if the Son of God being delivered into the hands of men, being crucified on a cross, was fully within God's plan, surely we can be certain that all that we face in our lives is part of His good plan as well. We're also taught to be certain. We're given assurance of the majesty of the Son of God. As I've said, it's a veiled majesty as in a tent, but it's a real and certain majesty, even from beneath the veil. Even when He's no longer transfigured in glory, even then, He's still able to deal with that demon with a simple rebuke. And the demon must obey. And they rightly stood in awe of the majesty of God as they saw it displayed in the person of the Son of God. It's a real and certain majesty. And we can be assured of this. We also must be assured of the necessity of the cross. As I've said again and again, as I've stood up here week after week, and I'll say it again and again, the cross was not an accident. The cross was not a backup plan. The cross is the one ultimate plan of God by which He reconciles sinful people, rebellious people to Himself. Jesus Christ made peace with God for us through His cross. And that was something that God ordained, that God intended before He even made the world. It was God's good purpose from the very beginning to make a people for His own possession, a redeemed people, a people on whom He would set His great love and demonstrate in the sending of His Son. It was not something that He did in order to resolve a problem that He did not anticipate when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It's something that He intended before He made Adam from the dust of the ground, before He made Eve from Adam's rib. God's eternal purpose, you can be sure, required the cross, required one who would suffer in our sake so that we might not merely be a perfect people, but that we might be a people who are redeemed and so know the great love that He has for us. You can be assured of that certainty. And you can be assured of the coming of His kingdom. It's not delayed, as some have alleged, nor are we mistaken that it will surely come. As Peter would talk about in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he said in the latter days, scoffers will come and say, where is His coming? It's been a long time, 2,000 years and ticking. And yet, Peter tells us, a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. It's not delayed. It is fixed in His authority. And that kingdom will certainly come in glory. And it has already come in the hearts of those who embrace Christ by faith. You can be sure of that. Even though we live in this age and we struggle with all of the challenges that come to us as we live under the rule of earthly kingdoms, as we live under governments, that are evil, that promote evil agendas. And we wonder and we pray, come Lord Jesus and how long will it be? We can be sure. It will surely come. It will not be delayed. Though there is an indefinite period of time between His ascension and His return, it is only indefinite to us in what is revealed, but it is known in the mind of God. It's implied by the way in which Jesus speaks 
about these things and what he shows of himself. Not a reality uh, that came to be. He was not transformed into something he was not already. But what was true of him was shown. His nature, his glorious nature was revealed as the veil was removed. So that his disciples might know for sure that his kingdom indeed will surely come in the way in which God wills it. And finally, you can be sure, dead sure of the wisdom of Christ. Jesus taught us earlier in this gospel in Luke chapter 6, the wise man builds his life on a solid foundation, his words. The wise man is the one who builds his life on the things that Jesus teaches us and that he shows us of himself. And you can be absolutely sure when you are confronted by the wisdom of the world and a world that says it's not wise this way that you go. It doesn't make sense. It's really foolish. It's really illogical. You can be sure that their wisdom is not the wisdom of God. When God said to Peter and James and John, this is my son, my chosen one, he hearkened back to the things he said at Jesus' baptism. He said, you are my beloved son. But here he says, listen to him. He is worthy of our trust. What he says to us is true. And even if we don't understand it, even if we can't make sense of how it fits perfectly within God's plan, we know that he made sense of it. For he alone understood that it was necessary for him to go to the cross. As he spoke of these things and said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. No one else understood, but he knew, he understood. And he was right. For if he had gone to the cross and he had remained in the grave, we would have no sufficient reason to trust him. But he did not remain in the tomb. The stone was rolled away. No body was found. But he was seen by many witnesses. He was raised as he spoke. The surest way that we know that we can trust him in everything is that he went as he said it was written of him. He did not remain in the grave. And so we can trust him. We can listen to him. We can believe that every word of Christ is true and build our lives on this foundation. Now, in final reflections, I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. To 2 Peter chapter 1, from which we read this morning together. And as we look at this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to some, of the, some things in this passage which I think, as a point of interest, suggest that Peter is the primary eyewitness for Luke. Peter wrote this letter before Luke wrote his gospel. We know that because Peter is dead by the time that Luke is probably writing. So Peter, as he writes in 2 Peter 1, it's very clear that he's making reference to these events what he saw in the transfiguration of Christ. But I want to go up a little bit more to verse 12 after I summarize a bit of what you see in verse 3 through 11. In this passage, Peter is telling some of the Christians in the early church that God has given them everything they need for life and godliness. And so he's calling them to pursue a life of godliness, to pursue... We want to know how can we pursue these things. Sometime in our world, sometimes in our world, we're told there are more urgent things than brotherly love. 
We're going to think about that tonight if you come back and hear uh, God's Word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Sometimes we're told that there are things that matter a great deal more because the needs of the moment challenges, challenge us to pursue, to pursue something other than godliness and brotherly love and virtue and faith. But Peter didn't think that way, and he was writing to Christians who were facing great persecution. No, he reminded them to pursue these things. And look in verse 11. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know that they would surely enter into the kingdom in this way, pursuing the life to which Christ had called them. Not another way, which so many people will call us to pursue. One that is marked by movements. One that is marked by some other thing other than service and sacrifice and godliness and faith. And he gives them assurances that they can trust that this is so. That in this way and not another way, an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord will be richly paid for them. Look at verse 12 and onward. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Let me go back and read that with a slightly amended translation. As long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my tabernacle will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, that is, after my exodus, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see what Peter is saying to assure them that they surely will enter the kingdom if they pursue this life to which Christ has called them? We saw his majestic glory with all of these words that we saw in Luke. And Peter recognizes he's doing the same thing. He's taking his cross up, if you will. He's going the same way that Christ himself went. He's about to put off his tent. He's about to make his own exodus. And as he prepares to go, he wants to remind these Christians of those truths that were impressed upon his mind as he himself saw the majesty of Christ displayed on that mountain and in events that followed. And he can say too, it's not just what we saw with our eyes, but we have a more fully confirmed prophetic word. What is that prophetic word? Just what I've been saying. Jesus died and he rose from the dead just as all the prophets said. Peter didn't have that confirmed when he was on the mountain. But we have it confirmed for us now. So whenever anyone challenges us to abandon the way of life that he has called us to, to go a different way, 
One that is not marked by humility, but pride. One that is not marked by service, but self-promotion. One that is not marked by Christ-likeness, but selfish ambition. You can know and you can be sure that His kingdom will surely come and your way into that kingdom is not paved by that way, but by the road, by the path of discipleship that He has called us to pursue. One of humility, one of brotherly love, one of steadfast faith and hope in our Lord. He will surely come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, O Lord, we pray that you would indeed assure us of these things, just as you assured your disciples of these truths through the great revelation that you gave him. And indeed, we acknowledge that their revelation, as great as it was, is not as full and clear a confirmation as what you've given all of us, as you fulfilled every word that you have spoken. We read it this morning in Exodus, even in the simple things, how all the way back in Exodus 3, it's recorded that you said the Egyptians would give their jewelry and would be favorable to the people of Israel. And then in Exodus 11, we see precisely as you promised, everything coming to pass. And so it is with every word that you have spoken. If it's not yet fulfilled, you have given us many assurances so that we might know that you will surely do all that you have promised. So we pray, O Lord, help us to trust in the midst of the uncertainties of this life, in the midst of the trials that we face, that none are unknown to you, that none are unforeseen to you, that all are part of your good purposes for us. May we never lose our hope. May we ever remain steadfast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.